0: on what i call route 66 i called it route 66 not because i'm terribly imaginative i called it route 66 because there are 66 books in the bible and oftentimes we'll dig into those books individually that's what i love to do i love to teach through a book paragraph by paragraph and and get what it is that god is saying to us and yet sometimes it's good to go back and get the big view Get the, get the overview. How does all of this fit together? How has God revealed himself from Genesis all the way through Revelation? Because sometimes we, in, in the midst of, of details and, and certain favorite books, we lose the glimpse of God's glory as a whole. We lose that whole story from beginning to end that God is showing himself to us. So, so what we're doing over a two-year period... We'll, we will be in and out of this series, Route 66, where we're going through the Bible. And on that journey through the Bible, we're, we're in, the, in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings. First and Second Chronicles were originally written as one book. But you have them in your Bible as two. And because you have them in your Bible as two, we're taking two weeks on them. So last week and this week. Now in Chronicles, First Chronicles, last week we saw that the son of David... The son of David prepares to build a temple to restore God's people to worship. Now that was set in a particular context. Chronicles, first and second, are written actually after all of these things occurred, long after. They're written after the Babylonian captivity, when God's people are returning to the land again, and they're being encouraged to follow God, to worship Him in His temple to restore that temple and to restore temple worship and to restore the genuine worship of God among his people the son of David one of David's descendants is going to rebuild that temple and we saw well that's actually his church the son of David our Lord Jesus Christ is building his temple and we are we saw last week that we are as a church corporately as a local body we are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit we are a temple The son of David is building his temple. And we saw that that, uh, that's true of us individually. If you've believed in Christ and the spirit of the living God actually dwells within you, then in your life, the son of David, the son of David, Jesus the Christ, is building his temple. Well, that sets before us the, the question this week. We see in Second Chronicles that the sons of David, the kings in 2 Chronicles, the kings that follow Solomon, and actually Solomon himself, all of the sons of David, they fall short of God's intention. They will not be good enough sons of David in restoring his temple and leading his people in worship. That's, that's going to be for a later son. But still the question that's set before each one of these kings as they represent the country, the question that is set before each one of us in parallel to them is what will you do with God's temple? If God is building his temple here at Brush Prairie, in not this building but this body, if God is building his temple, if my life, if I'm to be a temple of the Spirit, what will I do? with God's temple see that's the question that's put before one king after another what will you do with God's temple second Chronicles shows the need for a better son of David that better son of David will come that better son of David will be our Lord Jesus Christ the Gospels open up and they show in both genealogies Matthew and Luke they show that Jesus is the Christ the son of David he is the son of David who will build this temple he's doing that with us but let's take a survey through Let's take a survey just through Second Chronicles just to get some of the highlights. I put that on, a, on another map for you, a map quest sort of a thing. Solomon builds the temple. The first nine chapters, a lot of real estate in this book, are given to Solomon's building of the temple. The temple is central to the book. Just like we learned uh, that the genealogies matter, the names matter. Individual people, God remembers what you do matters. Solomon builds the temple. The temple takes on a, a, a very uh, a, a place of emphasis in this book. Now, the nation is divided. The nation's at war within itself. In that war, in chapter 13 in particular, though neither side is truly following the Lord, the side that has the temple and the side that says, you know, God has given us this temple. God has given us this priesthood. God has given us this worship. We shouldn't be drifting away from him. God has given us this temple and his promise. That's the side that prevails in that battle. It's based on the, victor, the king's victory. The king's victory from God is going to be determined by how he responds, how he refers to God's temple. Uh, there, there are good kings followed by bad. There, there, there are probably more bad kings than good kings in 2 Chronicles, although the good t- kings seem to get more real estate. There's things that we can learn from the examples of those good kings. In fact, I put several uh, kings to ponder. Just consider something from those chapters their lives on the back side of your bulletin. But don't read that now. That's for later. That's for this afternoon sometime. A couple of those high points. There's Je- Jehoshaphat's revival. King Jehoshaphat restores the temple. Uh, Hezekiah restores the temple. And you see that when he, when he then prays to God from that temple, God hears and God answers. That's recorded in this book. It's recorded in Isaiah's prophecy as well. You find that in in King Josiah's revival, late in the book, it's too late to turn the tide for the nation. The trajectory that they're on has already been established by this time. But there's a pause in the coming judgment because of Josiah's revival. And Josiah is restoring the temple and while they're restoring the temple from from uh, being being set aside and idolatry that was occurring there and so forth while they're restoring that temple they come across the book of God's law and they find the book and they read the book and they respond to the book they respond to God's word and they say, oh what are we gonna do all of this trouble that we're having all of these these difficulties that are coming upon us it's because we have wandered from God we have turned away from God and so we are not experiencing his blessing. We're experiencing what Deuteronomy dis- described. When you turn away from God, God will turn his blessing from us. And they were experiencing it as a people. And Josiah repents and he leads the people in returning to worship God. They restore the Passover. They celebrate Passover like it hadn't been celebrated in years. And that's recorded in Chronicles. Because what is Passover? Passover is a return to, the, to these, this people's redemption in their Savior. God had redeemed them. God had rescued them. God had given them new life out of Egypt. And we know the parallel there for us is obvious, that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. When you see Passover, think redemption. Think new life. Because Christ was our Passover lamb. Christ is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so they, they celebrate Passover again, just like we month by month celebrate the Lord's table. That's our Passover celebration. We're remembering his death for us until he comes again. Well, Josiah, they, they celebrate Passover. There's, there's a restoration, but again, after Josiah, the country continues to decline, and it goes into captivity, and it ends with a list of some of the kings even into that captivity, and the book closes with King Cyrus, who is not a son of David, King Cyrus is not Jewish. King Cyrus is not a king of Judah or Israel. King Cyrus is a king of the Medo-Persian Empire. King Cyrus comes after Babylon. The Babylonian Empire swallows up Judah and carries them into captivity. After about 70 years or so, when the time of their captivity is up, Babylon is then defeated by this Medo-Persian Empire. And one of their first kings, Cyrus, decrees that the Israelites should return to Jerusalem and build their temple again so that there they could offer up prayers to God for him. It worked in Hezekiah's day, he said. When Hezekiah offered up prayers to God from that temple, God heard. And God did marvelous things. And God said we should, that they should do that they should turn again to his temple and he would hear their prayers. He would restore their land. He would heal them as a people. Cyrus sends them back because when they go back to the temple and when they pray at their temple, you know what Cyrus wants? He wants them to pray for him. Now, Cyrus wasn't especially a, a devoted follower of the true God. He actually also sent other peoples and other, back to their homelands to rebuild their temples and, and offer up prayers or sacrifices for him too. Cyrus was trying to cover all of his, all of his, uh, all of his bets here. He was saying, hey, anybody out there pray for me, I'll take it. You know, there's a, there's a mindset of that today. People know that you follow the Lord. You can pray for them. They actually, I, I very rarely, very rarely, it's weird when I ask somebody, well, can I pray for you? Is it, is it right if I'm praying for you in the next week? Oh, that'd be great, thank you. Very rarely does somebody say, no, I don't want anybody praying for me. That's weird when that happens. So you just think, okay, it's kind of awkward now, but normally, well, sure. You know, what can be, what harm can come? By asking your God, oh boy, you never know, because God might begin intervening in life. And that may change lots of things. But for good, for his glory, and for their eternal salvation is the way I pray. But, okay, so Cyrus wants them to pray for him. Sorry, I got off track there a little bit. But it's interesting that Cyrus, at the end of the book, it's a call back to the temple and a call back to prayer at that temple, because that's really the high point of the first nine chapters as well. The first nine chapters, getting in, we see that there's a pray, there's a dedication of the temple by Solomon, and when Solomon dedicates the temple, I'm in I'm in first I'm in Second Chronicles now, chapter six. He prays, and there's an extended prayer in chapter six, starting at about verse twelve. Solomon's prayer of dedication for this temple that he has built for the Lord. And it it goes on. But in the midst of that prayer, verse 22, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears an oath before the altar in his house and hear from heaven and act and judge your servants... Things that are prayed at this temple will matter. Things that are said at this temple will matter. Verse 26, When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive them and heal their land. He talks about when there's famine in the land, when there's pestilence. He talks about when the enemies are, have overrun them. He talks about when they are carried away into captivity in verse 37. And then they pray toward this place. Did you ever wonder why Daniel, when he prays in Daniel chapter 6, he continues to pray toward Jerusalem? He opens his window and he prays toward Jerusalem as he always had. Why was he so stuck on praying in a certain direction? Because God said to pray toward this place and toward this temple. And Daniel took that seriously. He expected his prayer to be answered and his prayers were answered. So on and on again, when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven and heal their land. And then God responds to Solomon's prayer. And that's where I want us to turn to and I want to read that verse carefully in chapter 7. And we'll start at verse 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence against my people, why would God do all those things? Those are the things that he said he would do back in the book of Deuteronomy if his people did not follow him. If they rebelled against God, if they rebelled against his word, if they rebelled against his ways, he said, I'm going to withdraw my blessing from them. This was a land flowing with milk and honey. This was a fruitful and prosperous place. He said, I will withdraw. I will hold back that blessing if they have turned away from me. But he says, if when that happens, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, verse 13, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sins and heal their land and there's a prayer that we grab hold of we grab hold of that prayer and we say oh Lord as a people as a nation we have wandered from you as a people as a nation we have turned from your ways and so we often grab hold of that verse and we put it typically over a U.S. flag background, and we say, God, we repent. We, we return to you, God. Heal our land. Heal our nation. Make this a moral nation. Make this a nation where your righteousness abounds. Make this a nation where people follow you and where right is done, where justice occurs. And. It's not right. It's not wrong to pray that way, but if we pray that way, when we put that prayer up there, when we put it up there on the background against the flag, oh, I hope I don't get into trouble here. But it probably should be a Jewish flag. It probably should be a flag of Israel, because the promise concerning the land and the healing of the land, right here in chapter seven, is in response to the pestilence on the land, the plagues on the land, the famine on the land that was related to Deuteronomy and the withholding of blessing for this national people who had a national relationship with God to represent God as a nation of people to all the rest of the world. We do the book injustice when we export that and say what was true of Israel is true of the United States. The United States is not God's national people. The United States is one of the nations of the Gentiles like all the rest of the nations of the Gentiles. And we have been so blessed as a nation when we have have benefited from a heritage of leaders And people who have walked with the Lord, who have known Christ as Savior, who have lived a transformed Christian life before their families and before their neighbors and with their neighbors and have walked in the way of the Lord, and we as a nation have benefited from that. And the gospel has actually historically gone out from this country to all the rest of the world. But that doesn't make this a Christian nation in the sense that we have a special, unique, national relationship with God the way that Israel did. There is a people that has a special, unique relationship with God as Israel did. There is a nation that is, or there is a people that is a kingdom of priests holy to the Lord. A unique and special people. And that people is not a particular nation today. It is out of every tribe and nation this thing called church. What we last week referred to in a local sense as temple. It's very appropriate. That as, as Solomon here has a temple prayer concerning this national group of people that have a unique and special relationship to God, oh, Oh, that we, as a people, who have a unique and special relationship to God, that we would grab hold of that prayer. And we would pray it not concerning those around us who how can they walk in the ways of God when they don't know Him. We would pray that prayer concerning ourselves. Last week, I, I went uh, from, uh, from that temple emphasis in First Chronicles, and we went to the book of Ephesians. And we saw in the book of Ephesians, at the end of the book of Ephesians, this, well, not the end of the, end, the end of chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near to God. That's temple language, folks. That you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That Christ, he says, has taken down the dividing wall. The wall of separation, the wall of separation that kept non-Jewish people out of his temple. That's what's being referred to in chapter 2. And then at the end of chapter 2, remember, he got very clear. Turn back to Ephesians again, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18, we through, we through Christ have, have, have access in one spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer outsiders when there's an inside people, Israel and the rest of the nations of the world, we're outsiders looking in that can only get so close to the temple and no further. No, we're in the family now. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the householder family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then he shifts the metaphor, right, from family or people to a structure in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That the church out of every tribe and nation, the church is unique as a people of God, as a dwelling place of God in this world. If we are going to go and pray concerning God's temple and concerning worship there, we do well to pray the prayer of 2 Chronicles. But not so much for our nation as a whole as for our church as a whole. And from this church as a whole to pray that way for Christ's church as a whole. You know, I am not at all surprised that after after Paul gets to that end of saying the church is God's temple in Ephesians 2, Wow, the church is God's temple. And then he's moved to pray. Chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul... He, he begins to lead into a prayer, but, but then he, he, he's, he interrupts. He's got to explain a little more about this unique thing called church. So there's a, a, there's a parenthetical explanation there, and then he picks up that, that prayer again in verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the knowledge, with all the fullness of God. You see what He does? He is praying, he says, because the church is God's temple, I pray for the church. And I pray a certain way for the church. We can be very well instructed out of prayers like this on how we should pray. But especially if we're saying, okay, the church is temple. The church has a unique standing as God's people. When things are not on the earth as they should be, we should go back and pray. Solomon said we should go back to the temple and pray. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem to go to, but we are temple, and yet we should pray. We should humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways. Wait a minute. I thought it was the wicked ways of the people out there that concerned. Well, judgment begins with the household of God. Let's let God so transform. Let's ask God, let's beg God to so transform this temple that, like that temple in Jerusalem when Solomon would invite his royal friends and the Queen of Sheba would come and she would say, Oh my goodness! Well, well I heard about this. I heard about this place and the worship that occurred here. But the half hasn't even been told of how glorious is this true worship of the living God in this place. Oh, that people would say that about here. You see it? That's what Paul's praying for. That's what he's asking for here. He, let me break that prayer into three, into three. He prays, change our heart, O God. Change our heart, God. Change us that he might grant you to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Now he's not saying, oh, I pray you'll be saved so that the spirit of the living God will dwell within you. No, that's true of you already. He's praying for believers here. And yet he says, he says, I'm praying for you that God will strengthen you by power with his spirit in your inner being that your inner being will be changed god change us from the inside out change my heart o oh god you know i am so easily drawn to cheap substitutes for pre- for pleasure when god has said that that In His presence is fullness of joy, that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, temple, in God's presence, that's where real pleasure is, in fellowship with Him. And yet, I'm so easily distracted and drawn aside. Change my heart, God. I'm so easily drawn aside to lesser purposes that do not matter. And at the end of it all, I will say why. I was telling somebody just the other day, A couple of guys that were saying, well, you know, one of the things I've learned along the way is when I talk to people, you know, toward the end of their lives, I've never heard a man say to me, I was actually encouraging them them to be a little less ambitious. I said, I've never heard a man say to me at the end of his life, I wish I'd spent more time at work. I wish I'd spent more effort on my career. I wish I had spent more time at the office. It's always less. It's always the other way around. I wish I'd spent more on the things that really matter, on the things that have eternal value. Change our heart, O oh God. What else is he praying in, um, from about the second half of verse seventeen? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in Christ's love for us, that you would know, that you would begin to comprehend the love of Christ that is beyond our ability to comprehend it. What is he pr- praying? Oh God, deepen our grasp of God's love in Christ, and thereby deepen its grasp on me. Deepen my insight into Christ's love so that Christ's love will have more of a grasp upon me. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14 says, "The love of Christ." Compels us, constrains us, controls us, whichever ver- word your, your version reads, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot of overlap there. The love of Christ controls us, because we thus judge that one died for all, so that when we who now live will live for him who died for us and rose again. The love of Christ when, when the love of Christ gets hold of me, the love of Christ controls me, I need to know something more about. His love for me—that's the way I need to read read the book. It's interesting. To, to that same Corinthian church, Paul writes in in First Corinthians chapter two. First Corinthians is the book where he is confronting all kinds of problems in the church in Corinth. And you know what he says? Starting out before he begins to give specific answers, and he does address and confront the issues. But the first he gives his underlying principle, and you take this principle, and it will—it it is fleshed out in multiple ways in all the rest of First Corinthians. Okay. And what he says, the answer to your problems as a church, the answer to the immaturity and the self-serving and the sin among you is this. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, that that would get hold of us. Oh, that we would get a closer look at the rejected and crucified pouring out His life for me, Savior oh my, his love for me. When you experience personal rejection that is undeserved and that somebody just rejects you and it's hurtful, stop right there. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting defensive, stop right there and say, that's what Christ endured for me, but far more. He was rejected for me. He suffered for me. When somebody else has cheated you and not treated you how you should have been, given you less than you deserve, instead of railing against them, instead of getting your, your defense or even your offensive game on, stop right there. That's how Christ, that's how Christ was belittled for me. That's why he was treated unjustly so that his righteousness could be upon me instead. Oh, that the love of Christ would indeed constrain us. that it would get more a hold of us. You know, we believe the lie that God is distant. We believe the, the, the lie that, that, that God is, is withholding from us. We believe the lie that God will just use us for His purposes and His ends. In all of that, we are not believing that God loves us even more than we love ourselves. Oh, that we would be grabbed by the love of God for us. We could let go of most everything else, I think. Oh, Paul prays, change our heart, O God. Deepen our, this, this is Paul's temple prayer. Change our heart, O God. Deepen our grasp of, of Christ's love for us and its grasp upon us. And God, make us more like Christ. Make us more like Christ. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer is this, that you would be godly, that you would be more goddish, that you would be more godlike. And what does God look like? Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That what we see about Christ in his life and his earthly ministry, there would be echoes of that that people would see in our life. Oh, the compliment paid to the disciples when it was said of them by those Pharisees and Sadducees as they sat at that council. And they recognized these are untrained. These guys are fishermen. And yet they rec- how dare they talk to us that way? And yet they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, above anything else that people would recognize that we have been with Jesus. There's something about Him upon us that comes out of us. That we have so filled our tank in fellowship with Him that it just overflows to the people around us. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's his prayer. You know, I want us to pause here. I want us to pause here. And as, as we go back over those three again, those three prayers, change our heart, O God, deepen our grasp of God's love in Christ. Make us more li-. I I want us to pause right here and do that. It's one thing to talk about praying. It's another thing to pray, isn't it? I'm going to encourage you to Maybe, maybe which is just with a handful of people around you. Maybe there's one other person you came with, and we could pray together. Maybe just slide together. Maybe a handful of people, maybe five or six. I don't know, but grab grab a circle of people together, and at least one of you pray. Go, ahead. we'll do it out loud. You know, God will sort all that out. We don't have to be quiet so it doesn't get confusing. Go ahead, let's pray these prayers for one another, for this church. Could we do that? Is that a little awkward, a little uncomfortable? I don't know that per- That's okay. That's okay. These are good things to pray for them. You don't have to, well, how can we pray for you? We know how to pray for one another. Change my, uh, the person next to you, they're miserable. God, change their heart. That's what they need. Okay, so let's do that. Let's do that. Let's pray for one another. Change our heart, oh God. Deepen our grasp of your love for us, oh God. Make us more like Christ. Together, an individual. Let's stop right here. Let's pray. Go ahead, just huddle together. Let's pray. Thank you for hearing your voice in your church, Lord. Do, do change us. Change our heart. Cause our hearts to desire with you. Lord, God, help us as we read our Bible to look for words of your love. Help us, Father. Heavenly Father Lord would you change our hearts cause us to love the things that you love Lord put that love within us Lord uh, make us do cause us to long for the things that you long for to to desire what you desire so that our prayers will be that that you're waiting to answer Lord change what we like change what we seek change what we love change what we value Change our heart, oh God, to be more like your heart. God, your heart is a heart of love that, that loves us more than we know, but we need to know it more. Lord, the more we get hold of your love, the more your love gets hold of us. And Lord, that's what we ask for. Would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, would you show us things like that, that story of Manasseh, an evil and wicked king, and yet at the end he called upon you and you had mercy upon him. Your love is new and fresh and rich and deep and full. And there is nobody in this room that is beyond it. Lord, remind us of your love. Open our Bibles up to us that we would see there the message of your love. Help us as we read day by day to see your love written there in Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, change us. Make us more like Christ. As we know Him and His love for us, Lord, might that love overflow out of us. Make us more like Him in what we say and what we do toward others, those around us. Oh, God. Make us a temple that others, as a church, make us a temple that others would would look in here and see truly genuine worship is there. Truly, God is in your midst. Oh, God, let it be true here at Brush Prairie. Let it be true in our lives. Let it be Overflowing out of us, then, Lord, to bless the people around us, we ask it in Jesus' name and all who believe. Said, Amen. You know, in Second Chronicles, you know how it closes. It. Clo- well, I told you how it closes before. I told you that Second Chronicles closes with King Cyrus, King Cyrus's decree to return to Jerusalem to build that temple so that praying would happen. Jesus said, "My house is to be a house of prayer." for all nations. That's what temple's about, isn't it? Build that house. That prayer may happen there. Oh, God, we pray the same thing today. Listen to what Cyrus says. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, last two verses in the the book, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Oh, God, stir ours the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let him arise. That's our prayer too, isn't it? That's the command spoken to us. All of ye who are His people, let us arise. Let us build this temple to the glory and praise and worship of God. Would you pray with me? Father, let that be true. Let it be so. Father, that, that it would be true even in our community around us. People would see your, the moving of your spirit here. They'd see it worked out in ways of love that show Christ, in ways that the, the world around us desperately needs so that they would actually also desire your increase here. They would desire your fruitfulness here in this church that we might be a blessing to our community. Oh, Father, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and pray. Let us go forward as your people to be that temple that you've called us to be for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Father, now as we as we come with our worship, even our offerings, Father, might you receive this. Might you hear our words. Might you take the gifts that we bring. Might you take this offering now that is received. Lord, use it for your glory. Use it to proclaim your name, to make your son Jesus known in this place